Welcome to Willard Church of the Nazarene. We're glad you're here. We can't wait to share the service with you. of sin and darkness whose love is mighty and so much stronger the king of glory the king above all kings who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder and leaves us breathless in awe and wonder the king of glory the king above all kings
shake up the ground of all my tradition break down the walls of all my religion your way is better your way is better shake up the ground of all my tradition break down the walls of all my religion your way is better all my tradition break down the walls of all my religion your way is better your way is better and I will make room for you to do whatever you want to to do whatever you want to I will make room turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Today uh, we're going to be taking a look at this. This this psalm was written by King David. 
It is not well known compared to other psalms like Psalm 23, but this psalm is quoted more than any other psalm in the New Testament. Jesus uses this psalm to challenge people's thoughts about what the Messiah would look like. And the statements that he uses and the discussion around it are amazing. Peter preached on this psalm on the day of Pentecost. The writer of Hebrews goes to this psalm time and time again to give his readers a complete view of what redemption looks like. Would you stand in honor of God's word? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning, morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on that day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crush, crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Father, this is your word. Our only desire is to hear from you. Holy Spirit, speak through it. Soften our hearts so that we can accept it and respond Open our eyes and our ears so that we can be aware of it, Lord. May we give it all the honor. May we give you all the honor that you're due. Lord, be with our time. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In uh, Matthew 22, the gospel writer talks about a time when Jesus Christ was publicly confronted by his opponents. The religious leaders were very jealous. I, I thought it was funny because of our Sunday school class and everything that we talked in and how God lined all this up. But the religious leaders were very jealous and upset of all the attention that Jesus was getting. He was getting to be very popular. So they publicly debated him and they asked him hard questions. They were hoping that he would either say something wrong, say something stupid, or that he would at least alienate part of his base, part of his followers. You probably remember some of these questions that they asked him. What do you think about paying taxes to Caesar, Jesus? Think about that question, how controversial it would have been at this time that they're in bondage, that they're in subjugation to Rome, right? Taxes were being collected from them to fund their enemy. Should we pay taxes, Jesus? He was asked about the resurrection of the dead. He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? They had 613 commandments at this time period. Which one's the greatest? They were all meant to trip him up. But he knocked the ball out of the park with each question. And after they got done asking him a question, Jesus turns and asks them a question. He gets in their face with this psalm. Why this psalm? The Old Testament is filled with prophecy about the coming Messiah, a descendant of David, who would be a great leader, perhaps a king, that would deliver Israel from bondage. 
The descendants of David, this descendant of David was called the Christoph, the Messiah, the anointed one. Because of their situation, because of their, what they were dealing with at this point, being conquered and under Rome, they assumed that this Messiah would free them from Roman occupation. Side note, we always tend to read Scripture from our situation and try to apply it based on that, our culture. But we have to understand the original intent. We need to seek to understand that the times that the scripture was written in. It can't mean for us something that it did not mean for them. Psalm 110 was understood at this time pointing to that descendant of David as being the Messiah that would liberate them from Rome because that's what they wanted. So they made it fit their situation So Jesus says, let me ask you a question. And he quotes quotes verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then he looks at them and says, if this is David's son or descendant, why does David call him Lord? In Matthew's account of this conversation, it it says that uh, everyone was stunned by this question. They couldn't answer him. And it says that no one dared him ask him any more questions. Why? What, what's the big thing with that line right there? As we said, this was a psalm of, of King David. And he's speaking, he says, The Lord says to my Lord, The first Lord is God the Father. And David said, He said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That raises the question, who in the world is David referring to with this second Lord? David was the king. If he was talking about his descendant as they all thought, he would have simply called him his son. Who would have been above David that he would refer to as Lord that wasn't God the Father? That's the question. What Jesus is pointing out is that the Messiah can't just be a person, one of David's descendants, like they had all thought, because David would have never referred to this person as Lord. So who in the world is this person that David refers to as Lord? But secondly, who who in the world is this person that God the Father would speak to in this manner as well? Because at the end of verse 1, it says, God the Father says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God the Father doesn't say, sit at my feet. When he says, sit at my right hand, that implies something. When this was written, to sit at the right hand of a king was to sit level with the king. That would mean to share the throne. Joseph shared Pharaoh's throne, right, in ruling power. You see this in verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord extends his scepter, and this king reigns. They share that rule. The Father shares that rule. 
So by asking this question, Jesus is pointing out, you say the Messiah must just be a person, a political ruler, but how can that be when David refers to him as Lord and God the Father shares his rule with him? This psalm can only make sense if the Messiah person described here is more than a human being and somebody that is not God the Father and yet is level with God the Father. That's who your Messiah must be. Jesus uses Scripture and challenges their total understanding of the Messiah, everything that they had been brought up to believe their entire lives. For followers of Christianity, for us today, we recognize this person as Jesus, right? Who was David's descendant, offspring, and level with God. Romans 1.3 says, Who as to his earthly life, speaking about Jesus, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The question for us today is who is Jesus to you, right? That's what we're going to be looking at Palm Sunday next week and Resurrection Sunday. Who is this Jesus, this is something that every one of us must wrestle with. Jesus took himself out of the box for them. Their box labeled the Messiah as just that political leader to save them. That's who they wanted the Messiah to be. We all have people, we all have a Jesus that we want him to be as well. To do what we want, right? But he does not fit in that box. You can't put him in that box. He was saying, just as I'm a descendant of David, I'm David's Lord. And we must recognize him as that. I'm not just a human being. I'm much more than that. I'm not going to be this human political leader like you want me to be and conquer your enemies. I'm coming to conquer sin and death. We all try to put Jesus in that box. Everybody likes Jesus, likes his teaching, what he said, They love his example. I don't know anybody that thinks he wasn't a good person, but he claimed to be equal with God. He made outrageous claims. Hey, if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father, right? He said, I am the way, truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If he's just a man, he'd be crazy. But if he is the Messiah, if he is the Lord, is if he is equal with God, then we have to take him out of the box and recognize who he is and what that means for our life. Will we bow down to this king? He might not be the Messiah they wanted, that we wanted, but he is the Messiah that we need, that we're desperate for. And we have to recognize him as Lord if we want to have a real relationship with him. You have to surrender your life to him fully and quit trying to fit him into the person or to the being that you want him to be. Jesus is Lord. He's king. The psalm also teaches us something that would have thrown them from another loop. This king is also a priest. Verse 4 The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This same person 
that the Lord God said reign and rule also says you're not just a king, you're a priest. This would have been a shocking to people who read this before understanding who Jesus was. Why? Because in Israel, kings were not priests. And priests were not kings, right? The jobs were different. The callings were different. Kings represented God to the people. And priests represented people to God. They're pointed in opposite directions with their calling. Kings came from God to the people. They ruled in place of God with his authority. Kings were figures of strength and judgment, and they forced the law of God on the people of Israel. If you disobeyed, you were punished. Priests were the opposite, though. Priests served the people and offered sacrifice and prayers for the people. Priests sought atonement and forgiveness for sins. Priests cared for the poor and the sick, and if somebody wanted to give their money to the poor, they would give it to the priests who would distribute it. So you just didn't, at this time, have priests who were kings. But here's the thing. You will never understand the gospel fully unless you see Jesus in both ways, as priest, as high priest, and as king. It's quite the combination. And it makes perfect sense if you look back through the gospels at it, right? That's just how Jesus was. In Jesus, we see infinite majesty and glory, and yet we see humility, and meekness, right? Majesty of a king, humility of a a priest. He combines infinite justice and boundless grace. He is completely self-sufficient, but also completely dependent on God the Father. He is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. He is both a king and a priest. Jesus in front of the religious leaders, in front of the Pharisees, in front of the rulers, in front of Pilate, right? In front of them, he is undaunted, unmoving, not intimidated one bit. He's bold. He goes into the temple, makes a whip, and drives the money changers out of there. He's king. But he also, we also see him going to the little girl that has just died taking her by the hand and saying, Talitha kum, honey, it's time to get up. Look at him going to the lepers and touching them and healing them. Look at him touched by the pain with the women that are feeling the loss of their brother Lazarus. The Bible says he, he weeps. Look at him washing the disciples' feet. Look at him crucified on a cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He is our high priest. He is our king. We need to be reminded of that today. Next week, we'll see him riding in on a donkey. No king would ride in on a donkey. But that's the way Jesus enters, because he is not a king that is looking to triumph by force, conquering people. He will conquer sin and death and atone for mankind in another way. In his death and resurrection, sin and death are defeated. If you want to understand the work of Jesus Christ, look at Exodus 33 and 34. It's where God comes down to Mount Sinai and he's talking to Moses. Moses said to God, show me your glory. 
And God tells him, no one may see my face and live. But God hit him in a rock, put his hand over him, and passed by and let Moses see him from the rear. And he said, I will have all my goodness pass before you. In Exodus 34, we find out what that means. God passes by with all of his goodness before Moses, and he declares his name, who he is, right? This is who God said he was. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. That is God's name, who he is. That is God's way of showing us all his goodness. You have to see it all to understand, right? Did you see the contradiction at the heart of it? He forgives sins, but he punishes those that are guilty. I'm a forgiving God who must punish sin because I'm a just God. I'm a good God. Why, why can't God just let sin go unpunished? Because he's good. That is part of his goodness, right? A judge who sees somebody hurt and does nothing about it and does not punish the person doing that would not be a good judge, right? We would say that that judge is wicked. That judge is corrupt. But we also see that he is compassionate and wants to forgive sin and rebellion and wickedness. Why? Because of his goodness. It's an apparent contradiction because if God is all good, then he should forgive sin, but he should also punish sin. Without Jesus in the equation, it doesn't make sense, right? It's only as we understand what Jesus did for us that we can truly understand and see all the goodness of God. The essence of sin is that we put ourselves in the place of God. We, we are in charge of our own lives we, we put ourselves where he should be, where he deserves to be. We play God. The essence of salvation is God puts himself in our place, in the place that we deserve on the cross. When we believe in him, when we put our faith in him, all of our sins on the cross are put on him in our place. When we believe in him, God treats us as having his righteousness because we are then in him. The cross is the combination of the holiness of God, punishing sin, and the love of God, atoning for sin completely. They coincide. This should take our breath away. This should melt our hearts of stone, realizing what Jesus did for us. And when you really get it, it will flip your lives upside down. And it will make you want to share the most amazing news with everyone that you come into contact with. That's why we have to see him both as king and priest. Without our faith in Jesus, we can't really see the fullness of God. This king is not just a man. He is on level with God. This king is not only a king, but a priest. Last thing, this king transforms us into new creations. Verse 3, your troops 
will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. This king gets willing volunteers that come to him, come for him. He doesn't have to draft these people. They are willing, which points to they love him. They respect him, right? They admire him and they want to serve him. Now keep this in mind. When David was writing this, he was thinking about deliverers. He's under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it seems like he was thinking about the deliverers of old, people like Gideon, people like Samson, Othiniel, right? In days before this, these people would rise up and deliver the Israelites from oppression. We see this further in verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. That's the way the old deliverers were. That's how they dealt with oppression, right? They heaped up bodies. We see it with Samson. Jesus Christ is a different kind of deliverer, though, right? Some think that when David wrote this, he was actually thinking of Samson. He will drink from a brook along the way, ties into account where Samson was delivering the Israelites and became very thirsty. At one point, he's dying of thirst, but he finds a a brook and drinks from it and lifts up his head. So it's likely that David was pointing to him, thinking of him, thinking of these old deliverers, but Jesus Christ is the one that all of those deliverers point to. He goes beyond them all. In Ephesians 1.20, Paul quotes Psalm 110. He says that when Jesus Christ died, the Father raised him from the dead. He ascends into heaven, and he was seated at the right hand of God and given power and authority to rule. But unlike the next verses in this psalm we read that talks about piling up dead bodies, Here, Paul says something about Jesus Christ. He says he's not piling up bodies, but instead he's sitting at the right hand of God, filling the world with his body. That blew me away. Not piling up bodies, but filling the world with his body. Who's his body? That's us. That's the church right? We are the body of Christ. That is how Jesus is defeating evil. He's not doing what we think, strike those people down, right? He's turning enemies into friends. He's turning sinners into saints. He's changing people. He's flipping people's lives upside down. He's wrecking lives in a good way. Isn't that the ultimate defeat of evil? Some Christians put all their hope in politics to save this world. But here's how Jesus is defeating evil. He's changing lives with his body. That's what we're invited into. That's the great mission that we talk about in our motto. We were once friends, but now we're family on a great mission. Here's the cool thing. When we accept Christ when we trust him and his grace for our salvation, when, when this happens over and over in the New Testament, it describes us in a certain way. Do you remember? We're described as both kings and priests. 
In other words, we get a little bit of his character. The gospel humbles us, doesn't it? Like a priest. Points out that we're sinners. We're all in need of God's grace. That is the only hope that we have. At the same time, in Jesus Christ, though, you are told that you are fully accepted in him. You become a child of the king. It's humility and boldness wrapped up in one. This is one of the things that really turns me off about other Christians, especially other Christian preachers. It's when they lack one of these. Some have the boldness, but lack the humility. They preach truth, but there's no grace behind it. Either that or it's all grace, but no truth is preached. It can't be just one or the other. We are called to be both priests and kings. Kings call people to repent. Kings speak truth. Kings tell people to turn from their ways and that if they follow Christ, they can have a new life. At the same time, we're priests. Priests help the poor. Priests serve their neighbors. They sacrifice. They tell people of God's grace. They're agents of that grace. We need to be both. Jesus Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. In Hebrews chapter 7, this phrase in Psalm 110 is quoted, Hebrews 7:11. Another priest was to come in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of the priest Aaron. Aaron would have been the first priest of the Israelites. Who is this Melchizedek? We, we meet him um, in Genesis 14. He was a priest and he was a king. Genesis 14, Abraham meets this guy as a king, but he also offers sacrifices to God. He shows up and blesses Abraham, and then we never hear from him again in the Bible. The Hebrew writer points something out, though, kind of tongue-in-cheek in in Hebrews 7.3, that this Melchizedek came out of nowhere and almost says he didn't die, which speaks to our Lord, right? That points to Jesus being unlike any other priest. Remember, Jesus is not going to be a priest like Aaron. He's in a different order. He's a priest like Melchizedek, meaning he is a king and he is a priest. He's our king. He's our priest in heaven. I don't know if I fully understand that and grasp that. I don't know if I fully understand and grasp everything, anything about God. But I'm reminded that we can go to him. I'm reminded of when he says to Peter, hey, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says in his arrogance, I will not, even if I have to die, right? Peter ends up doing that and has the worst day of his life, probably. But Jesus lets him know something. He tells him, I have prayed for you. And when you recover, strengthen your brothers. He is our priest. He prays for us. He intercedes. He's an advocate to the Father's throne. This, this weekend, I was extremely grateful of that truth, knowing that I have a priest that is available directly to me that I can go to. He is a priest when you know not what to pray. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father 
when Stephen, the first century, Christ, the first Christian martyr, was about to be executed by some court of man that was condemning him, he got a vision. Do you remember what was in that vision? He saw Jesus at the right hand of God. When he realized that he was being condemned in this earthly kingdom, but at the same time when he looked up and saw Jesus standing next to God the Father, knowing all that that meant, having that advocate in this heavenly court. Do you remember what happened? It said his face became like that of an angel. Who cares what this world thinks? There's Jesus at the right hand of God. Who cares if people point out my sins? There's my Savior who died to take all that away. Who cares if they take my life? You remember what he prays? You remember what he says to them? He asked God to forgive them right before they would stone him to death. My friends, you and I can only do that if we recognize Jesus as our Lord and as our priest and see him where he is. Amen? Would you stand with me? You are a king. You are a priest. And God calls you to fill those roles, to speak truth to people. When you see them doing things that they shouldn't be doing, but he also calls you to have all that grace behind your words when you speak to them. Be agents of both. If you're just speaking truth, you're going to be a Pharisee, right? If you're just speaking grace, you're just going to be an enabler. You have to have both. That's what Jesus was. That's what we need to be. Amen? Father, we thank you for today, Lord. We thank you for the tremendous gift that you gave us. We thank you for grace. Lord, help us to share that with the people that we come into contact. Lord, point out the people that you are working on, that you are reaching out to, and that you are calling us to speak to. Lord, give us a boldness. Let us remember who we are in you. And help us to speak the truth with your grace. Father, we love you and we give you all praise. In your name we pray, amen. You are dismissed.